The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in His kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Ecclesia, would you pray with me this morning? Father, I thank you for the time that you have given us to gather together as a community. Lord, I ask you that your spirit may speak to us today, for it is you who have words of life. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Man, the band's incredible, right? Absolutely. I keep waiting for Matt to allow me to sing. I mean, I've auditioned for him, and he told me that I sang like an angel. I mean, I think that's what he meant. He said it was ungodly, so, I mean, that's the only thing I can walk away with. I appreciate this opportunity to share with you this morning. I want to introduce you to my backpack. Now, this backpack has been on a lot of journeys uh, with me. You'll notice that on the front, there's this multicolored pool. This was uh, crafted by my 10-year-old granddaughter, and I just thought it was a great place to put it because it reminds me of her every time that I look at it. This backpack could tell you of a lot of journeys. I mean, going up hiking in the Rocky Mountains, uh, fishing with our sons and daughter-in-laws and grandchildren. It could tell you about a time when Janet and I, we went to Rome and we were lost. Well, let me, guys, we never get lost, right? We're just momentarily directionally challenged, right? So we, had, we were trying to get our, our biorhythms on the same cycle as the clock. So we decided, let's go out for a walk because the tour started the next day. So we walk, we make it to the Tiber River, and we decide to go back. Simple, right? So we start this street and that street, and it always ends up where it's a dead end or there's construction or there's a building or, you know, do not enter or whatever it was. And so I, as the sun began to set, I became a little bit nutted up, well, maybe a lot nutted up because I was thinking about all the things that could happen they didn't. We eventually made it back. And so that's inside this backpack. It could tell you about just trips around town and just day-to-day life type of things. You know, those are all positive things. But this backpack could probably tell you about some hurts, some dif- disappointments, some painful experiences. And we all have those type of experiences. But the important thing to know about backpacks is that they tend to influence what we think of ourselves and how we respond to God. Today is the final in the series, Exodus for All. I want to give you just a heads up, spoiler alert, Moses does die. Okay, if you haven't made it that far, Moses does die. And so in this series, we've seen some snapshots of Moses. And we've become aware that Moses' life could be divided up into three 40-year segments. The first segment is where he is educated in the wisdom of the pharaohs. He grows up in the household of the pharaohs. Acts chapter 7 says that Moses was a man who was powerful in word and in deed. That's a little bit different perspective than we normally consider when we think about Moses, is that prior to his wilderness experience, He's a man who was powerful in word and deed. Moses does something during this first 40 years. He has good intentions, but it turns out horribly wrong. He sees a Hebrew and an Egyptian fighting, and he kills the Egyptian. Moses flees after that, and that begins this second 40-year period in his life. Moses spends his life during this segment as a shepherd. Imagine moving from the palace to the pasture. 
And this is a semi-arid desert region. It's not a lush, green, rolling hills, nice body of water, live oak trees scattered around the property where you can sit in the shade and watch your sheep. But during this time, I think Moses spends a lot of time unpacking this backpack, looking at what had happened in his life. It's during this time, the latter part of it, that God appears to Moses and says, now's the time I'm going to lead the people of Israel out of slavery from Egypt to the land that I've promised them, and I'm going to use you. But Moses says, uh-uh. As a matter of fact, he has five excuses. He says, who am I? And I think he's looking at some of the experiences of his past, and there's this feeling of inferiority. And then he turns the table on God, and he says, well, who are you? And God explains to him who he is. And so his third excuse during this time is that, well, they're not going to believe me. I think he's haunted by the rejection that he experienced with his last experience in Egypt. And then he says, I'm not eloquent. According to Acts chapter 7, that's not the case. He was a man powerful in word. And then he says, why don't you just send somebody else? I vote for plan B. And God says, no, you're the man. And so Moses does go. That ushers in the final 40-year segment of his life. I want to fast forward to the end of that final 40 years. That end is found in Deuteronomy chapter 34, beginning in verse 10. Since then, there's never been another prophet in Israel like Moses. God knew him face to face. No one has ever done anything like the amazing things God sent Moses to do in the land of Egypt to demonstrate his reality and power to Pharaoh and his servants and his whole country. And no one has shown such great power or done such terrifying things as everyone in Israel saw Moses do. It says that there's never been a prophet who has ever lived who is as great as Moses. My question is, what transformed this man who was racked with inferiority, he was just plagued with immobility, to become this great prophet that no one has ever been a prophet as great as Moses. What event or process transformed this man's life? My second question is this, what can I learn from the life of Moses? So let's look at this first question. What was the event or the process that transformed this man's life? In order to do that, we need to look at Moses' backpack. First of all, his family. Now Moses really grew up between two worlds. He was too Egyptian to be Jewish, he was too Jewish to be Egyptian. I would just have to think that that caused him some stress in his life. It was a difficult spot to be in. He didn't really have a home where he fit. I think also he may have had some questions about his family of origin. I'm well aware that Josephus in his first century account titled The Antiquities mentions some things about Moses and the interaction between his mom and his dad. Scripture has no mention of that, so I'm just going to go to what Scripture says. And I'm going to suppose that Moses, sitting on those rocky outcroppings as he's watching his sheep, started thinking about, well, I wish I'd have had some time, more time with my mom. We never really bonded. And I wish I could have had those walks along the Nile River with my dad just to ask him questions about how do you do this or how do you live life. That's in Moses' backpack. Then there's elements of faith. 
Moses was nursed by his mom until he was three or four years of age. And during this time, I'm confident that his mom told him stories about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And so Moses had a foundation of his Hebrew faith heritage. But when he goes to the school of the pharaohs, he had access to all types of information. And it's possible that he learned more about his Hebrew faith ancestry. But he did learn about the faith of the pharaohs. You see, in that day, the pharaohs had 1,500 gods. You could worship one every day of the week and never repeat worshiping the same one for 4.1 years. Lots of choices. So Moses' family is in his backpack. His faith is in his backpack. But there's also his failure. We find an, the account of his failure in Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Years later, when Moses had grown up, he went out to observe his people, the Hebrews. And he witnessed the heavy burden of labor forced upon them. He also witnessed an Egyptian beating one of his Hebrew brothers. He looked around to see if anyone was watching, but there was no one in sight. So he beat the Egyptian just as the Egyptian had beaten the Hebrew. Moses ended up killing the Egyptian and hid the dead body in the sand. He went out again the next day and saw two of his Hebrew brothers fighting with each other. Moses confronted the offender. Moses said, why are you hitting your friend? The offender, who made you our prince and judge? Are you going to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Fear immediately gripped Moses. Moses says to himself, the news of what I did must have spread. I must get out of here quickly. Moses was right. When the news reached Pharaoh, he sought to have Moses killed. But Moses ran away from the Pharaoh until he reached the land of Midian. And there he sat down beside a well. So Moses flees. What does he do? He marries a nice pagan girl. He settles into a life of routine. Just a routine of tending sheep. I just picture Moses sitting on this rocky outcropping, unpacking this backpack, and maybe having some questions like, what if I had just walked away when I saw those two people fighting? What if I just didn't care? Is this all there is to my life from this point forward? I mean, I like my father-in-law, he's been great to me, and I love my wife, and, but is this all there is? So Moses is carrying this around in his backpack every day. So what made the transformation to become the greatest prophet that has ever lived? I think the answer is found in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. For his part, Moses was a uniquely humble fellow, more humble than anyone in the entire world. Think about Moses. He moves from the plush palace to the semi-arid desert as a wanderer herding sheep. Instead of leading armies, he's tending sheep. Instead of giving great speeches, he's talking to sheep. Don't tell me you don't talk to your dog, okay? I do. We have great conversations. You know the thing about her? She never rolls her eyes at me, okay? She never argues. She's always happy to see me. But here's Moses with all this in his backpack, but eventually he writes the first five books of the Bible, the old, first five books of the Old Testament. He leads at least two million people out of slavery to freedom. 
And God speaks to him as if he was speaking to him face to face. If the secret to Moses' life was humility, how did he become humble? Moses became humble by unpacking his backpack, by looking back, by looking at the events of his life and seeing where God was at work. Think about his birth. We commend Moses' mom. She was a woman of great faith, courage, and ingenuity. She crafts this boat. She puts Moses in the boat. She puts him in the Nile River. But what kept Moses from becoming crocodile bait? It was the hand of God. That's what kept him safe. And then when the Pharaoh's daughter finds him, she picks him up and she looks at him and she says, Oh, what a beautiful baby. Well, who made Moses beautiful? We both know beautiful parents who've had ugly children, right? Don't point, okay? Don't point. So who made him beautiful? It was the hand of God that made him beautiful so that he would go and live in the Pharaoh's house. And did he choose to go to the school of the Pharaohs? No, God chose that and worked that into his life so that he would learn the culture, the networking, how the processes and the procedures within the Pharaoh's life worked so that later on he knew exactly where to go and what to do. His time in the wilderness, he learns how to lead sheep because he was going to lead people. He learns how to live in the desert because he was going to live in the desert. As Moses looked at the front part of the tapestry of his life, the surface, the picture part of it, it was often, I'm sure, very, very unclear as to how all of these pieces fit together. But when he flipped it over to the backside and he could see how this strand was connected with that strand and all of these fit together and he could see that it was the hand of God in these circumstances and it caused Moses to bend his knee and to bow his head. Moses was a humble person. Moses saw that during those first 40 years of his life, there was an influential God weaving these circumstances and situations together. During that middle 40 years in the desert, he saw that there was a faithful God who had not put him on the shelf. He had not forgotten about him, but this was just part of the process. And during those last 40 years, he sees a very gracious God at work within his life and the life of all of the Hebrew people. Did Moses make mistakes? Absolutely. Moses became discouraged. Moses doubted his calling. And Moses even limited God. Moses knew very clearly because of what he did. He was not going to enter into the promised land. God told him at least three times on separate occasions, you're not going to enter into the promised land. But when you read some of the final words of Moses, you never hear a hint of bitterness. Not once. If it's me, I'm kind of thinking, hey, look, I mean, I sort of did this thing, right? I mean, I, I've, I've hung in there. These other people, they didn't. I wanted to cross. They weren't too sure about it, but I was willing to cross. Listen to what Moses 
says in Deuteronomy chapter 4 beginning in verse 39. You just need to know with every fiber of your being that the eternal and no one else is God up in heaven and down here on the earth. If you remember his rules and keep his commands, which I am teaching you today, things will go well for you and for your children after you. You'll live a long time on the ground the eternal your God has given you. He wants you to have it forever. Moses had a backpack. We all have backpacks. I have a backpack. I want to just unpack a couple of things for you in my backpack this morning. Here at Ecclesia, we have what we call our rhythms. And one of our rhythms or values is to be real. It means to be authentic or to be genuine, not to put a facade up. And so I want to do that with you just uh, briefly this morning. When you walk into this building, most people when they walk into this building, they see the beautiful thing that God, the beautiful tapestry that God is weaving here at Ecclesia on the west side. But most people really don't flip the tapestry over and, it, and have seen how all things have been woven together. You see, I'd never met Chris, uh, well, until about maybe 10 years ago, eight years ago. And we had a 15-minute conversation just about something that doesn't pertain anything to Ecclesia on the west side. And we never saw each other after that 15-minute conversation, just never ran into each other, never had a reason to have a conversation, until uh, the week before March the 3rd of 2016. I received an email from Chris, and uh, it was, hey, let's get together for lunch. Well, I knew what it was about. People say, well, Jim, how did you know? Well, when you get old, you just know things, okay? So we got together for lunch, two-hour lunch, and it was exactly what I thought it was going to be, is that Chris was talking about, what do you think about merging Memorial Drive Baptist Church and Ecclesia? We had a great conversation. I left as I was walking across the parking lot to where I had parked. I literally stopped in the middle of the parking lot, and I had this prayer. Lord, I don't want to do this. If there's a plan B, I vote for plan B. If you can do to me like what you did to Philip, you know, on the, uh, with the Ethiopian eunuch, just sort of translocate me somewhere else, and I just wake up, and boom, there's me, and there's Janet there, and you know, life is good. And the reason I said that, because I said, Lord, this is going to be really, really hard. And so we began to... Uh, talk a little bit. I began to, to pray. And what you're not aware of is that maybe four years before this meeting is that in the 10 years that I had been at Memorial Drive Baptist Church, I mean, we'd seen some good things happen. But I just felt like that we were sort of at a plateau. And the, the biggest change that we could make would be for me to not be here. And so if you were to turn to my prayer journal and you would look, you would see this opportunity, that opportunity, this location, that location, you'd see no, 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 flip the page, no, 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 flip the page, no, 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 until you see August the 7th of 2016. For on August the 7th of 2016, Memorial Drive Baptist Church voted with 82.5% favorable vote to merge with Ecclesia. It wasn't until that I turned the tapestry over 
and began to see how the hand of God had been at work. Here's the reason that it's no, 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 yes. Here's the reason that God had placed people like Hal Elrod and Ron Harold, Max Johnson and Ann Roper and Dennis Carey. He'd put those people together, Mark Swartz, to form a team to help in this transitional process. And so when I walk in here on a day like today or a week like Easter, it is not difficult to bow a knee, to bend a knee or bow a head because you see the hand of God at work. And when you put together all the other things like how he's led Titus and Matt and Mason and Haley and Katie and Lauren and Rita and Douglas and all of those stories being woven together with your story is that it causes us to bend a knee and to bow a head because it's God who is at work interacting with these elements of our life. William Henry Doremus. He was my great-grandfather. William Henry, and his, uh, he married. He and my great-grandmother had seven boys. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and then one girl. Pity that girl, right? <laughs> my grandfather, James W. Doremus Sr., said that he never knew his father to have a job because he was an alcoholic. My grandfather was the next to the youngest boy. It's not that the boys were irresponsible, for you see that when they would graduate from high school, they would stay in town, and they would work and contribute to the support of the family. When my grandfather was in the sixth grade, one of his older brothers came to him and said, why don't you quit school now, and then when I finish high school, you can go back to school. So my grandfather quit school in the sixth grade. The only problem was that brother that talked him into quitting school, when he finished high school, he left town. So my grandfather never finished his education beyond the sixth grade. If you were to speak with him as an adult, you would never know that, just by the way he carried himself, the way that he talked, and what he had done. Well, my grandfather married my grandmother, and they had two girls first, and then they had James W. Doremus Jr., my dad. My grandfather said that he made a decision that he was not going to raise a lazy so-and-so like his father was. For you see, his father had come to live with him and my grandmother and stayed there until I was about two years of age. And he said the only reason he allowed his father to come and live in his house is because his mother must have loved him at some point in time. As you can tell, there's not a close relationship between my great-grandfather and my grandfather. So when my grandfather has my dad, the first and, uh, of two sons, he's not going to raise a lazy so-and-so like his father was. And so he would have my father after school and on holidays come down to the store. And what did he have him do? He was putting together wagons and bicycles after school and on holidays. What does my dad grow up to be? An engineer. Somebody at 9 o'clock said, a wagon? No, not a wagon. He didn't grow up to be a wagon. <laughs> it just makes sense. It just makes sense that he'd be an engineer. 
But while he was down at my dad and my grandfather's store, there was never this conversation going on because there hadn't been conversation of life between my great-grandfather and my grandfather. And so this baton that was handed to my grandfather was also handled, handed to my father. My father was a worker. He would go to work as an engineer early. He would come home. We would eat dinner. He would watch a TV program. Then he would go and he would read. He loved to read about history. He played golf on Saturdays. I grew up playing golf. You'd have to take that by faith at this point. But we never really played golf together. So in the summer of 1972, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. Growing up, I'd made the decision that I was not going to have any children. They cost too much money, took up too much time, and they were just ungrateful. That's probably just the way that I was, okay? So, I give my life to Christ, and He comes into my heart and begins a transformational work. He is still doing a transformational work and has a lot of work to do. I went to school at undergraduate at Mississippi State. So I went there, I became involved with a Christian campus organization, and I heard these uh, men and women talking about this camp that they worked at during the summer, a boys and girls camp, like Camp Ozark. So I decided, man, that sounds like a lot of fun, and that's what I'm going, I'm going to do that. My parents weren't excited because I was making $25 a week. So I uh, went there and I worked, and uh, what I had that entire time, every two weeks, a cabin of eight-year-old boys, 10 eight-year-old boys. I could tell a lot of stories. I'm not going to do, do that because we don't have time. But it was a great opportunity. For you see that not only were we trying to implant in these boys' lives, is that the owner and director of the camp played football for the Dallas Cowboys. He was a linebacker. And so we would have Bible studies, and we would learn what it was like to grow in Christ, and we would also learn what did God expect from men and women, and how are we to be parents. And if I can just give you a little parentheses, okay, those of you who are raising children, you're not raising children, you're raising parents. And the scary thing is, you really don't know how well you're doing until your children are parents. So, I made the decision that this baton that started with my great-grandfather, that was handed to my grandfather, that was handed to my dad, that was handed to me, I was not going to pass it to the next generation. So, here's something that may seem like the greatest liability in my backpack. Is that I work at this boys' camp and that begins some of the process in God's sovereign, divine, gracious providence is that Janet and I just happen to have a blind date, okay? And Janet has more relational ability in her little finger than I have in my entire body, and that's the honest truth. Those of you who know her can just nod and say, yes, Jim, you're exactly right with that. But what may have been my greatest liability? Maybe my greatest contribution to the kingdom. I've never written a book at this point. I probably won't outside of a doctoral dissertation. But maybe my greatest contribution to the kingdom may have been this life that started out as a liability. You're going to see a picture. This is our oldest son, Christopher. His name means bearer of Christ. 
This is on his first tour in Iraq. He's a warrior. He's strong. He's fast. He's smart. Obviously, it doesn't come from my side of the family. <laughs> but that's not what impresses me about this picture. What impresses me about this picture is his heart. He's handing out candy to kids on the street in a war zone. Somebody this morning after uh, the 9 o'clock said, is he still in the service? No. He's a bomb tech with the FBI. Janet said, can't you do white-collar crime or something? You know, but that's just, that's just not who he is. Ziti protects us to this day. You're going to see a little clip of his only daughter, Whitney. She's three. Whitney, what's the Bible verse? Go and make disciples of all nations. Whitney is very dramatic. She's quoting part of the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, where Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Years ago, if you'd looked at my backpack and you would have thought, is his granddaughter going to be quoting the Great Commission? I don't think so. This next picture you're going to see is our youngest son. His name is Timothy. It means worthy one. That's his son, Jack. This was two weeks ago. And the old guy in the picture is me. We're standing in a pool. Timothy is the pastor at Life Church in Wichita, Kansas. And so what a privilege it was to stand with my son and to assist in baptizing my grandson. And it would have been enough if Timothy would have, I mean, if Jackson would have been the only one. But he wasn't. A hundred and four other people went through those waters that day as well. And they'll do that four times this year. What may have been the greatest liability may have been the greatest contribution. You see, we all have backpacks, and they're filled with family, and they're filled with faith, and there might even be a failure in there as well. They're filled with assets, and they're filled with liabilities. And even our successes, through the years I've had people tell me, Jim, I was just at the right place at the right time. Well, who do you think did that? When you flip that tapestry over and you see the weavings in there, it's the hand of God who has done that. Why didn't it happen to your coworker or to the person down the street, your classmate? It was the hand of God who was weaving that tapestry of your life together to fit into His purpose. So as you open your backpack and you begin to look at these things and you begin to see how God has been, how He is, or how He might be weaving those things in your life to accomplish His purpose, it is at that point when we see that is that we bend our knee and we bow our head in humility. Paul, in writing to the church at Philippi, says this, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, 
who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, that literally means slave, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the praise and glory of God. Amen. Well, Ecclesia, I am grateful for each of you. I'm uh, especially grateful today for Jim and the word that he brought. And uh, I'm grateful that we had a good lunch at Morton's uh, a couple of years ago, and uh, they didn't mess up our steaks or something, and uh, that God is weaving a tapestry, right, that's really, really beautiful. The hard part is we lean into that, right? There are places in all of our stories, and there are places in history that we stop and look, and we go, God, I got, I got no idea what you're doing here. So I'm trying to look on both sides of it, but I... I don't see quite what you're up to. And um, as we prayed at the beginning of the service uh, for our brothers and sisters connected to the tragedy at the Santa Fe High School, um, we know this is one of those seasons. And so I, I want to invite you to continue to pray um, for our brothers and sisters. Um, this is a story that's not just geographically close to us, but it's really close to us as a church. So Paul Pelk on our staff, who leads worship downtown, his wife Meg, uh, is on the faculty at Santa Fe High School. Uh, his sister-in-law, she graduated from that school. His sister-in-law is on the faculty as well. Uh, we're grateful that both of them had just recently brought new babies into our Ecclesia family, and they were away on maternity leave uh, when this happened. But you can imagine the sorrow and the pain as they walk through uh, with students that they love. We're going to be leaning in with them. Uh, to find ways to help love and serve and bind the wounds of those who are hurting. Uh, but we're also a people that are never just made to pray, right? Sean reminded us in a sermon uh, last year, right? Uh, prayer without action is just superstition, right? It just, it just becomes a, a rote ritual that we're a people that are made to act. And so we're going to break the typical preaching schedule next week, and I'm going to speak to you directly about what I believe we're to do uh, in the life of kids and schools and the responsibility that we have um, to make the world safe as best we can for our children. Some of that's going to involve how we talk to our own children in this community about uh, evil and struggle and some of the problems in the world. And we're going to figure out some ways that we can work together to do this. There are a lot of my sermons that you can miss, and you might even be better spiritually for it. I'm not sure. Um, there are some weeks you can make a case that a morning on the beach would draw you much closer to God than any of my sermons. Um, this week in particular, um, we're going to speak about how we are all to act together in unison. Uh, this is the kind of place that we have to have a corporate and collective response. It doesn't just take a few of us deciding, you know what, we're going to love on our kids, or we're going to help out at schools. Um, we need a, a corporate communal response where every ecclesian says, um, the young people in our city are our responsibility, they belong to the church. And so we're going to love them, we're going to teach them, we're going to encourage them, and we're going to walk together in that. So this is one of those weeks. I just encourage you to be present. Uh, if for some reason you have to be out to follow in quickly uh, to get to hear that sermon, sermon and share in our response together. 
So as our benediction, I just wanted to lead you in a prayer. We want to pray for Paul's wife, Meg, uh, his sister-in-law, Megan, uh, for all the faculty and staff, the families there. And then we want to pray collectively that God would speak very clearly to us about how to be the church uh, in a season like this. Um, because I can tell you what the world desperately needs right now is the church to be the church. And for Jesus and those who follow him to lean in a way that um, uh, really are the only people that can bring true peace. Um, if we are left to our own devices, what the scriptures tell us is violence begets more violence, which begets more violence. And we believe that Jesus is the one that's called to offer a past towards peace. So before we depart, would you just be willing to stand with me? And we're going to pray together. And I want to invite you just to pray that God would speak to us next week as we, uh, as we seek his direction together. Lord God, we thank you for Ecclesia on the west side. We thank you, Lord, for the abundance of children that we have that are present with us even today. And God, we pray that our children, even in a difficult and challenging world, a world that feels unsafe to many of us, Lord, a world in which if they begin to just hear a bit of what's happening in the news, it can be troubling. And God, I pray that you would help us as families and as a church family to establish a place of safety for our kids so that they could be raised well, that they could sense your love and grace and security. And so, Lord, we pray against anxiety and fear this week. We also pray, God, that you would use your church to be an instrument of peace, both in our city and we pray across the globe. We ask you specifically to be with Meg and Megan and so many others who serve in that school. Lord, that the people in that area would feel your love. We pray particularly for families that are grieving. And Lord, in their grief, we pray that you would meet them in a supernatural way. We pray all of this together, and we pray it as your family, as a people that are made to go out into the world in the midst of difficulty and challenge and bring hope and peace. Lord, give us eyes to see our role in it. We pray all of this together, and we pray it in your name. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Ecclesia, I invite you to go in peace. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.